to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, I'm just so excited about tonight. We have a great guest and probably my all-time favorite topic. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I said, yeah. as I always do in the intro, the joined by the BS Express. And anybody who's seen the page, you have uh, new BS Express ring gear. Looks great, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Got it at uh, graduation at Jimmy's. That was that was a great time. I mean, it was really, it was very, very nice. And that was, I, you know, had an idea what it was going to look like and it just blew me away. So now I just got to get into good enough shape to wear it. <laughs> well, Jimmy Valiant and our friends at the BWC, another home run. Absolutely. But you mentioned to any, you said we have a great guest tonight and you're looking forward to the topic. Why don't you tell everybody who we got on the phone with us this evening? Yes. Uh, returning guest. This gentleman's a former referee, manager, wrestler, Wrestle Reunion owner and author, and I'm going to say fabulous book. There's a thousand adjectives you can use to describe that book. Uh, Bruno San Martino, she's sound like Ernie Ladd now. Um, the autobiography of wrestling's living legend. So, Mr. Sal Corrente, welcome back to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Hey guys, how are you? Doing great. That's yeah, great here. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Yeah, no worries. So he's. Uh... It's always a pleasure to get together and speak about Bruno. Absolutely. Benny, you always uh, you always have the baseball reference, but you want to start with a football reference yeah, this time, don't you? Yeah, a little bit you? different. So, and I actually watched the movie over the weekend, uh, Rudy, about uh, Daniel Rudiger, an undersized kid from, I believe he was in Indiana somewhere, a mining town, undersized Five foot nothing, a hundred nothing, without a barely a speck of athletic ability, had a learning disability, and somehow he overcame all of that to uh, to play not only uh, attend Notre Dame University and graduate, but um, actually played on the football team. He actually got in uh, uh, one or two plays, so he was officially recognized on on uh, you know as being a part of the the Notre Dame football team. And it, to me, that's like one of my it's all one of my all time favorite movies, and it's a Huge inspirational movie, but I have to think, and this, Sal, this is going to be a two-part question for you, that if, if if they did a movie about Bruno, um, that, you know, given the, all the obstacles he overcame, I can't even, I mean, there's a couple of sports figures, I'm thinking Wilma Rudolph had polio and Mickey Mantle had, a, I think it's called osteomyelitis, but like everything that Bruno overcame uh, is just unbelievable. So I guess... First part of the question is maybe for those who aren't, who haven't read the book, and if they haven't read it, shame on you. You need to get it and read it. But if they haven't read it, just you know enough to uh, kind of wet their whistle for the book. What you know, what Bruno had to overcome, and could you see um, a Bruno movie? You know, a, a, a true like not not a documentary, but a movie like Rudy about Bruno. Well, th this is the problem when you talk about a movie is. Um... 
And and I love the Rudy movie also. And, and just doing a little research here, it seems like he was actually from Joliet, Illinois, um, which, to be honest with you, is a surprise to me. I would have guessed he was from Indiana also. But from what I understand, the story is not really 100% accurate. Like, um, I've heard Dan Devine say that, you know, they did not portray him correctly. I don't think the final Rudy play actually went um, the way it was. They made a great movie, but Bruno was always very crystal clear that if his story was to be told, it was going to be told accurately. There would be no changes, this, this and that. And so I'm going to tell you that's probably why, because there were many inquiries. Um, I, I I just believe that's why it was not going to be made. And, you know, there were things that he talked about, like, you know, who would play his mother and portray his mother the way she was and, you know, things like that. And, you know, even in the rewriting of the book, the direction was clear. Do not touch the first three chapters, period. Um, and I said, well, we're going to touch them if they need to be grammatically corrected because the editing in the initial book was, was very poor. And that's, you know, where Colin Bowman would go through it. If there were changes to be made, he made them. But there was no change to the context, the wording. Um, but if if that needed to be corrected, we certainly had the green light to do that. But uh, anything else, you know, then we just put the book together. But I, but I, So I don't know that a Bruno movie would have ever been approved because Hollywood is always going to want the creative ability to change things to make it better for the box office. And Bruno had no interest in that. So just just give us like again for the people who don't really know Bruno like we do, what he had to overcome to 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 make you know make what he did of himself. Well, I, I mean, you start off with you know being a child. Your father goes to America to look for work. Uh, Italy's occupied by the by the Nazis. You're living up in the mountains. You contract rheumatic fever. Your mother is having to climb up and down mountains to to sneak back to your home where you had food stored. She's feeding you snow. She's putting, um, uh, I can't think of those, those, um, those things to help with the disease. Oh, the leeches. Maggots. Yeah. Whatever on, on you. And I mean, all of that. Then you come to this country as a weakling who can't speak English. You're beat up all the time. Um, you know, there was really nothing. And of course, when they came here, they were expecting to find streets lined with gold, right? And, of course, that's not the case not, not um, Pittsburgh. At, at all. But that was the expectation. And you didn't really meet your father. I mean, put it this way. He met his father, but he wasn't old enough to really remember that. So, you know, all he had was his mom. And, you know, you've other she's already lost other siblings and vowed she wouldn't lose another one. Um, you, you know, and then you get to this country finally. But, you know, even after things straightened out in Italy, I mean, because he had had rheumatic fever, it was quite a while before they could get the okay to come here. And then the, the troubles in America until, of course, he started lifting weights on his own. And then, and then let's face it, the problems with McMahon and being blackballed and everything else. And, you know, none of that, you know, was easy, but he just kept moving forward, which is what you, uh, which is what you have to do. I mean, the story is, is really unbelievable, um, but it happened and it just goes to prove that, you know, it may all seem terrible, but you know, it got him to where to where he was. Very nice. Well, let, let me ask you, um, just kind of a, a half follow up. Uh, you know, obviously, you said that that they wouldn't have made the direct story. What about the Hollywood's love for 
based on or inspired by stories that are completely unrelated to the final topic. Do you think something like that would have flown well? Well, I mean, I, I'm not, if you're asking about something like going on with the Von Erics now, where the family's not involved and they're just doing it, I guess in theory you could do whatever you wanted. But if they wanted Bruno's support, it would have had to be the story in his mind the way it was, period. And, you know, he just didn't believe that anybody was going to be willing to change nothing. So I hope I understood your question. But obviously anybody could have done anything they wanted, but nobody did. That's fair. You know, the, the story is so great and unbelievable. Would it really even need changing, though? Um, well, I, I don't. I don't know. Um, you know, to, to guys like us, probably not. But you know, sometimes people make changes just to create their own value. Um, you know, somebody wants to put their spin on it. Somebody wants to do it their way. Maybe things weren't exciting enough. You know, who knows? Maybe. You know, Bruno never told me, um, you know, that his mother confronted the Nazis when she would sneak down the mountain. But maybe they'd want to put something like that in, which didn't even happen. It, you know, um, who knows? All I know is there was a lot of discussion for a long time. Budget was talked about $25 million or so, and it never happened. And to be honest with you, Bruno didn't lose one minute sleep over it. He had no concerns whatsoever about a movie being made. Well, speaking of the Bruno story, he's he was the main player for years. And, you know, what, what they I mean, we've we, I've seen it referenced to before as the formula, literally like, you know, the the formula. I mean, they would bring a new heel into the territory, uh, wrestle some squash matches. Uh, they would and then you'd have the big he'd get over somebody like a Dominic Danucci, uh, you know, usually a big MSG show where you, you beat the second level face. And then they he would th that monster heel of the month, monster heel of the week, whatever you want to call them, would move into a, a series with Bruno, a couple of matches here or there. And so we talk about that. Could you see any other wrestler being plugged in in place of Bruno and this working from the box, like a box office draw perspective today? Um, no, I don't. I don't know about today. I, I, I the business has changed. Um, you know, so much. Um, I don't think anybody else could have done it back in that day. Um, because most guys, no matter how good you are, were somewhat one dimensional. They went out and wrestled the same way all the time. Bruno made sure that the fans never got bored. Um, because he was there and he was there for a lot. You can go into a territory and wrestle the same way all the time for a year and a half, two years. It's time to move on. In Bruno's case, he made sure he adjusted to his opponent. He didn't look for his opponent to adjust to him. Um, you know, he knew he was going to be the one at the club, and he knew that he had to. Um, he knew that he had to keep everything healthy, so he would do you know different things. But you know, if he was wrestling Mike Cicluna, they'd do a lot of high spots. If he's wrestling a Don Leo Jonathan or a Killer Kowalski, it'd certainly be different. If you're wrestling a a bulldog brower, you're going out there for the most part brawling, you know, and uh, that was important because if you really think about it, so many guys were repetitious, the same stuff over and over. And if you didn't adjust to them, you, you know, like, listen, Dusty Rhodes didn't change his style pretty much for anybody. You're working with Dusty. You better make sure you understood how to make Dusty shine. 
And if he didn't, well, that wasn't going to work out. You know, so Bruno not only would adjust to his opponents, he would also make sure things were different. When McMahon did favors for other promoters bringing in, you know, certain guys, you know, it's no secret who these people are. I mean, they went one time around, Bull Ramos, um, what was it, Tank Patton. You got the, um, uh, it, uh, you, you know, the right, Jesse, Orte- Jesse Ortega. These guys got one loop around. Now, Bruno didn't really – these are not guys Bruno would have said, let's bring them in. But the bottom line is McMahon needed to do these guys a favor. And in Bruno's mind, sometimes the people just need to see the champion beat somebody. You know, forget about this DQ here, count out here, program this. Pro- just sometimes we'll go ahead. And then other times you'd have a guy like Strongbow or even Lou Albano would say, hey, can you, can you get me a main event in the garden? Well, the bottom line is Bruno would do that every now and then. And, you know, he said, look, when I went to McMahon, he knew what I was doing. He knew I was trying to help these guys out. But at the same token, it was okay because give the people something a little bit different from time to time. What you don't want people to do is fall into a rut or a routine. Now, there's a lot of giving to get that success. You know, sometimes you have to almost release control to, to ultimately gain more control. And, uh, you know, that's why he had the longevity that he did, I believe, and I think he believed that as well. People never got tired. You never knew what you were going to see. And, uh, I mean, look, let's face it, guys. There's some matches you can go back on YouTube and watch, and it's the same thing over and over and over, no matter who the person's working with. And that's, you know, how much – I don't care how great the performer is, how often you want to go see the same movie over and over and over. It gets old fast. Yeah. So, so that's uh, the best explanation I could give for that. No, I I liked how because you you beat me to the punch transitioning from the product to the past because that was going to be my second part was if anybody back then could have done what Bruno did being the 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 main event star for so many different people for so long. I mean, you mentioned you you don't you know the product today being so different. What is it, it, Benny? Two, there's like two and a half years now. Push it, or, or by Mania, it's going to be Roman Reigns is, would have been champion for yeah, like a little over two years. I have and, to laugh. They still, you know, it's 765 days. Well, multiply that by, you know, three and a half, and you got Bruno. Right. Yeah, where even they, they were joking with uh, Madison Square Garden with the Billy Joel's venue, they, uh, his residency there, and he'd have to sell out every concert till he was 93 to tie Bruno's record. Well, and keep in mind in some territories, they work clubs every week. You know, Bruno only had to go to the garden 12 or 13 times a year. You know, it was a much bigger territory. You had several of the big clubs and, and so forth. I look, I don't know. I'm going to tell you that. No, I don't think anybody else. When you take everything and put it together. No, I don't think anybody else. Could have done it. And, you know, New York, you got to remember, New York was a big man territory for a long time. You know, Buzz Sawyer and Tommy Rich were two of the hottest stars in the country. Right. But, you know, bring them up north. Would these guys have been able to compete? I don't know. But nobody thought enough to give them a chance. Right. Buzz was in for a very short time, probably didn't make the best decisions and, and was out. And Tommy was never really given any chance at all. And these guys would do sellout business in a lot of places week after week, after week, after week. I was a huge fan. You know, um, we offered Tommy Rich as a, 
in Ohio to uh, to a substitute for slaughter who had to cancel on something. People were half out of their minds over it, it you know. But yet they were never brought up here. They always believed in New York being a big man territory. You know, Bruno was 275, 280 pounds, strong as an ox. You know, how many people were like that, that had the adaptability, that had the charisma that he had, you know, that brought the energy to matches? I, I just don't know. And, you know, there are several people you could say that to. Well, if it wasn't them, then who would? You know, you don't generally find too many answers to, to those kind of questions. There are only limited amounts of people that um, can do, you know, there's only so many Babe Ruths, Lou Gehrig's or Aaron Judges, right? I mean, you don't pick these people off trees. And uh, believe me, when McMahon brought Bruno back to New York, it was for a reason. He was more than happy in Toronto. He was being treated fairly and he was happy. He had no idea what the future would hold. But believe me, Vince McMahon didn't call him back from Toronto because he didn't need him. He called him because he felt his territory was in trouble, big trouble. So I have, it seems like every day, and I, I always promise myself I'm not going to do it. And then I wind up doing it. I get into an argument on, on Facebook with some stunad who, you know, they're talking about, and it's always on a wrestling, quote-unquote, oldies page. But, you know, somebody says about Bruno, well, he only wrestled, you know, in Madison Square Garden, or he only wrestled, you know, once a year. I, somebody actually believed that he wrestled once a year. And I, the first, you know, the seven years, eight months of his first reign, I, I mean, my understanding is he, he got Sundays off, right? So, which means he probably, you know, he probably wrestled close to 27, 28 times a month. Well, first of all, no, that wouldn't be accurate anyway, because... When he left Toronto, um, you know, he left with Frank Tunney's blessing. But for several years, um, you know, they ran the Maple Leaf Gardens on a Sunday. And um, Bruno went back for a long time. He said, listen, all I need from you, if you go back down there, I need you to, to do, you know, make the Maple Leaf Gardens for me. And Bruno went back there for a long time. He might have had, you know, two Sundays a month off or something. You know, part of the reason why Bruno didn't have – um, you know, an even longer reign with the belt, I personally believe is they used him to fill up too many of these B clubs that quite honestly, they didn't need him to fill up. I mean, these were not big clubs. You had other guys with, with enough of a name to fill up these smaller clubs. If they had given Bruno some time off, like he insisted and they agreed to in the second run, I think you would have been okay. Plus keep in mind, guys, the one thing that everybody lose, tr loses track of here is you think of a wrestling ring they were not working in today's wrestling ring. They were working in boxing rings. You know, I remember Bruno telling me when they forced him into a comeback, he got back in the dressing room and he says, guys, these rings are like trampolines. He said, if I had a ring like this, he said, I would have been champion for 20 years. You know, these guys were working in hard rings, you know, pretty much as close to cement as you're going to get. Now, this is where, you know, it just didn't make sense. Give the guy off a little bit. First of all, let him see his family, let his body heal, but they didn't do that. And sometimes, it, you know, it doesn't work out in your favor, and that's why he left. But, you know, eventually they had to go bring him back, and the deal was only work the big clubs. And quite honestly, the original deal was for a year. He was ready to leave, and they said, well, what's the problem? You're making a lot of money. We kept our word. You're only working the big clubs. And he said, you know what? You're right. 
So he said, I, I hung around longer, but eventually time was up. But, but so that first, that first go around, Sal, he was working the, uh, you know, Altoona, Pennsylvania and the Jersey city. And I mean, he, he was, was working doing, every, like, every, everywhere or he was out of the country. Right. Yeah. If he wasn't in Japan or Australia. Um, yeah, and I don't know if there were other places, but the bottom line is there was no really no time off. Now, the, the first time was was that more because he felt he owed it to the fans, or you know, did he feel obligated, or is this you know McMahon wanted him to you know? To, to well, I'm sure home. you know he was an employee. He went where he was booked. I mean, right. you know, and, and look, you know, you look. You're, you're a young guy. You know, we're talking about between 63 and 71. You're making a ton of money. You're going to do what you're told um, to some extent. But but did that work out well, in the long run? I don't think it did because, you know, the guy, the guy gave up the belt. And then three years later or whatever it is, you're running out to, um, to the airport in Pittsburgh saying, we got to have you back. You know what that must have took for the McMahons to get on a plane and go to Pittsburgh? And say we got to get you back, you know. From time to time, you know, Bruno's a very humble man, but every now and then I would just be a smartass and say, Bruno, that meeting with with the old man and the kid. I said, where was that again, Laguardia? <laughs> well, no, child, they they came here to Pittsburgh, and I said, yeah, that's right, Bruno. Don't forget it. Nice. Well, you, you talk about his, his between the first and second title. Uh, I mean, the first time he won, when he won the title, Buddy Rogers, obviously, you know, one of the more iconic days in wrestling, the 1963, and lost it the second time, Billy Graham, 1977. I mean, a time period that was two between his first win and his final drop of the belt. That was about 14 years. I mean, he gave up the title twice. Uh I, we we talked about it, Benny. It, it kind of hinted on it with some of what you were saying earlier. With you, you, you never had a, a phenomenon like that. Not before, not after. There's you know Roman. They're they're trying to make Roman Reigns out like he's the greatest thing ever at 700 and change days, and here's 14 years of sellouts. Um, you know, I, and, and you you have to think about it because you you mentioned it be, being on the show before with us. There's never a wrestler in history who wasn't asked to drop the belt. I mean, maybe not counting Ganya, who you know kind of wanted to keep he the belt on himself. So I don't I don't I don't see him asking himself to drop the belt. Um, you know, so I guess the question becomes: it, it was a box office decision. Uh, what was it about? Because you you, you kind of hinted on it when you talked about his wrestling style. But what was it about Bruno? I mean, month after month, sellout after sellout, year after year, sellout after sellout. He was, and it wasn't even just wrestling. He was one of the biggest stars in entertainment. Period. What what was it about him? Because we you kind of hint you said earlier that you you don't think anybody else could have accomplished that. What was it about Bruno that just created that megastar? Well, look, I mean, he obviously knew how to connect with people. Um, you know, when he went to Toronto, he was a nobody, did his own publicity, um, you, you know, et cetera. And, uh, you know, he eventually got through to people who did Italian radio um, and, uh, you know, got over, got people in the big, big tests of strength that he did and or feats of strength and all that type of stuff. But ultimately, I have to stand by what I already said, 
I mean, the bottom line is you didn't get bored going. You, you know, I, I mean, I don't really care who you are. You're going out and doing the same thing over and over and over. Eventually, I do think people are going to get bored. And uh, he didn't do that. But he knew how to connect with people. He knew how to give interviews. And, and look, he had the right foils, right? He picked most of these opponents were picked by him. He, you know, he understood who we can make money with. I mean, when he picked Bobby Duncan up in Japan, the old man was like, Bruno, I never heard of this guy. And he, and he, Bruno had already told him, McMahon would be calling him. He basically promised him a spot. He said, it doesn't matter. I've seen him in Japan. We can make a lot of money with this guy. So the old man called him and brought him in. But, uh, you know, as Bruno said to me one day, he said, Sal, I gave my opinion on a lot of things. The only reason they kept coming is because my ideas worked. If they didn't, they would have, they would have stopped asking me. Didn't he sell? Didn't he bring in Tanaka? Did he bring in George Steele? I'm sure he brought in a ton of guys. Um, yeah, I'm going to say for sure George Steele. I don't remember if he brought in Tanaka. He brought in Stan Hansen, um, but that was through the recommendation of a Mike Papadusis, um recommended Stan. Um, he brought in Gino Monsoon. I know that. And Gino didn't want to come in because he had heard negative things. He said, well, who are you going to listen to, them or me? And he came in. I believe he brought Koloff in. Um, you know, he probably brought in the majority uh, of the of the guys. The only like these one off people were never brought in by him. Uh, he brought Jay Strongbow in, of course, not as an opponent, but you know he he brought in Bruno there, uh, brought in Strongbow, he brought in Danucci. But as far as his opponents, um, yeah, and of course he had his favorites like anybody else. But um, you know he was happy with the people that he worked with obviously you know more some people mentioned more than others but nobody really you know anything to do with not wanting to work with somebody was really more tied to outside the ring behavior more than it was maybe inside the ring behavior just people doing stupid things and you know bruno you know took the business very seriously it's how he fed his family i i think part of the reason why the formula worked too and why people stayed excited was because, uh, you know, and as a kid growing up watching wrestling, I started watching in 1968. You would see Bruno on TV, you know, every now and then, but it was usually uh, doing an interview with Ray Morgan, you know, and they let him. Well, and that go. was Bruno's idea also. He stopped appearing on TV as much because it didn't make sense to him. Um, and he also started doing his interviews earlier so he could get to arenas instead of chartering these small planes that he had a lot of issues with while in the air but sure i mean if you were giving it away too much on television why come to the arenas but ultimately look i I mean everybody has an opinion mine is very simple seven years how many times you're going to go see the same thing you know it was very important to bruno to to mix it up and uh i think if you think about it and think about uh, people that are repetitious in the long run, they're either on stacked cards. You may be in the main event, but the card is stacked. Well, why is the card stacked? You look at these garden shows. I mean, Bruno eventually went to the old man and said, look, you're ripping people off. So this is ridiculous. Well, we got everybody else up, up in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, or wherever. But that's bull. Some of those guys need to be down here. He said, well, we don't need them. We've got you. You're ripping people off. You need to bring some more people to the garden, period. You know, he was always important to him that the fans got a great event and the fans were treated fairly. 
and I, I have to believe that led to a lot, you know, in good part to his longevity that he did care about what the fans thought and wanted. Well, ultimately, if you don't care about them, they're eventually not going to care about you. Absolutely. So, um, Bruno, in my mind, was, and, you know, I grew up in New York in the 60s. Bruno was on the same level as a Mickey Mantle in terms of, a, you know, being a star in New York. And uh, I, in reading the book, I read about when he, I, don't, I forgot what year it was, he actually got an audience with the Pope, which is, you know, unheard of uh, back then. And so with such incredible popularity, uh, you would think that would change somebody. And I don't see where Bruno ever changed. He always stayed the same humble Bruno. Do you think a lot of that has to do with how he grew up and all the adversity he faced growing up? Well, look, I, I don't know. There's no way to know that. Bruno was the only one who went through adversity. Remember, Italy was occupied. There were all kinds of families up there in the mountains. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't speak to that. Um, what I can say is that he never changed. Um, he really didn't. He was very, very humble. Um, always was treated everybody um, with the same level of respect. Um, you know, he was really just a great guy to be around. And any of us that are that got to spend any time around him will pretty much, you know, tell you that. Um, you know, his uh, his peers. You know, when I went around asking people to contribute to the book, nobody nobody uh, refused. Every, pretty much every single soul wrote something. Um, some of them, of course, were a little challenged with a computer, but they, everybody wanted to be a part of it, and, um, you, you know, and, and share their their memories. Um, some people didn't even think they deserved to be a part of it, but I wanted a diverse a diverse outlook. I thought to to look at it from from every angle of people that knew him, and and everybody pretty much speaks of him the same way. But uh, you know, who knows? what really makes a person's character. Um, you know, the truth is he could have easily been a very angry person, blackballed, left with no money, hitchhiking home from California, you know, or I was it California or Indiana, hitchhiking home from one of those places because you have no money and people like Jim Barnett, uh, you know, are starving you to death. Um, you know, all kinds of stuff going on around you. You don't have a clue why it's happening. But, you know, he never changed. He really never did. Whether he was successful or unsuccessful, he was the same person. And, uh, you know, you got to get a lot of credit for that because I can't say that about me. Uh, I mean, any of us. Yeah. You know, you, you hit it right. You, you almost like you're <laughs> – yeah, I'm trying to think how to word this. The the way you, you put it, you really – you said when you talked about Bruno, uh, they keep coming to me, him for ideas because what he has works. I don't think everybody talks about the wrestling, the matches, the style, the, the the sellouts. Really, I don't think Bruno gets enough credit for the keen mind he had for the business. Uh, one of the better. And, and, and he, he didn't oh, want but... any. He was more than happy for the McMahon, uh, McMahon family to get the credit. He didn't care. All he wanted was full houses, keep the territory healthy, and and make money. He he didn't care about credit. 
Well, then, you, you um, know, that was the that was the bottom line. He just didn't care. Well, let, let me let me have you expand on that for a second, then too, because uh, I mean, a great example, according to Larry Zabisco, the the his heel turn and the feud with Bruno, which to this day, how many years later, is still considered one of, if not the greatest storyline in wrestling history. Uh, I mean, it, Bruno orchestrated pretty much that whole thing. That was his idea, his narrative. So you talked about how he didn't want the credit. Would he not have put his name on the marquee? Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about the Pittsburgh territory. You've talked about Pittsburgh a bit already. Uh, I mean, he briefly owned, um, managed up there. Did he ever consider being more active in the business from a promotional aspect, running a territory, running businesses on that front? From you know, when he retired from wrestling, I mean, that would have required his name being, you know, the, on the marquee. No, there. no, Bruno. Well, first of all, he owned the Pittsburgh territory for several years, and um, the only reason he bought it is because he knew what was wrong with it in his mind. Anyway, of course, he could have been proven wrong, but he wasn't. He. Um, he totally believed he knew what was wrong. Um, the first thing he did was, I think he told Ace Freeman, from now on, there are no more champions. Because they had, everybody was a champion of something. And uh, the Hungarian champion, this champion, that, he said, forget all of it. I'm the world champion, the kangaroos are the tag team champions. That's it. And uh, he laid out exactly how things were going to go. And I think, I think it was Ace Freeman, but he told one of those guys, you could still stay in charge here. I'm going to give you the directions. As long as you follow my directions, you'll have a job. If you don't, you will not. And, uh, you know, obviously about six months or so, the territory uh, <clears throat> turned around. Vince McMahon um, uh, re- maintained some percentage of ownership in the in the Civic Center Club, I think 10%. And, uh, you know, that thing went well. And then when the territory was sold to Newton Tatry, he had told Newton, that um which was one of the mongols um he had told them the tv station people that were coming in did not like wrestling they were going to lose tv and he i don't know if he didn't believe him or why he bought the territory anyway of course without tv you're no place but when bruno walked away from the business he truly wanted to walk away and be forgotten well that never happened so i highly doubt that he really had ever had any intention the only time bruno was going to buy into territory was the new york territory he had a deal worked out with McMahon and Bruno was ready to buy, buy half. They would, he would have been partners with Vince McMahon. And uh, the deal fell apart when Bruno insisted that he have his own account and audit the books, either monthly or annually. That was a deal breaker for McMahon. He said, no, no, I take care of the office. You take care of, you handle all the talent. And that was an absolute deal breaker. So Bruno, Bruno's advisors told him, if you, if you're not going to be allowed to examine the books, you don't know if anything goes wrong, maybe nothing will, but if something goes wrong, your name's on this company, you're going to be involved too. If you can't examine the books, forget it. So that's what he did. He just forgot about it. Wow. That's one I never heard before. But that deal was, you know, that deal was going to happen. I mean, if it wasn't for that, if the manager said, well, of course you can have your account and sort at the books. There would have been, Bruno would have owned half of the WWE or WWF at the time. I wonder how that would have changed history. Yeah, certainly you, your mind can run wild with that. Um, I don't know, but certainly there's uh, a lot of ways you can go with that. But who knows? Maybe it wouldn't have changed it much. I think Bruno was making a tremendous amount of the talent decisions. Um, 
Um, you, you know, so I don't know that it would have changed much anyway. Um, but uh, it would have been interesting for uh, for sure. You know, McMahon did have some of his favorites, and there was a time, you know, when when Bruno put his foot down about certain talents. Again, behavioral issues. I don't think anything had much. But, of course, outside the ring, behavioral issues sometimes lead to poor performance inside the ring, too. So there were a few guys over the years he had a problem with. But, you know, we don't really need to name people. But we're talking about a small hand. You couldn't even count them on one hand, really. So going back to Bruno's early career, because, you know, that's actually my favorite part of the book is when he first starts out and he doesn't exactly set the world on fire. Not not, you know, not his fault. It's just, you know, to me, more the way he was booked. But, um, you know, then you have the black ball and you have the, you know, he's traveling around the country, eating, eating bologna sandwiches, finally winds up, like you said, hitchhiking back to Pittsburgh, goes back to his construction job. I guess uh, he went went to a show. And he ran into, I believe it was you, Con Eric. I could have the that's, wrong guy. That's right. That, that's right. And uh, so who hooks him up with uh, with Frank Tunney? And did, did Bruno ever talk about what would have happened if that meeting hadn't happened? Or, you know, say, you know, say Canada was all booked up and they, they couldn't use him. You know, I could see Bruno going right back and being a great, you know, construction worker and taking care well, of his family. And we, even though we have never heard of Bruno. He would have been a damn good family man. Did he ever talk well, about that? Well, not to any real extent, but, you know, he did tell me that he wasn't all that good of a carpenter. And really all he was used on construction sites is because of his massive strength um, to deal with a lot of stuff other people couldn't deal with. Whatever he would have done, Bruno would have had a probably a humble existence and would have worked hard and earned money. But there wasn't a whole lot of, of discussion about that. But he did tell me towards his final years that, you know, he wasn't that great of a construction guy, uh, that great of a carpenter. I couldn't see him as an accountant for some reason. I just, right. Well, I don't think that, I mean, nothing like that has ever, there was never any discussion about it. I, to be honest with you, I never thought to ask about it. He was in construction and learning to be a carpenter. I assume he would have tried to be a tradesman. But yeah. uh, like I say, he said, he. I mean, obviously he tried because Bruno doesn't do anything halfway, but. You know, it just wasn't, you know, his thing. I I could see him as the mater D at that that really good Italian restaurant in town everyone knows about. (laughs) You haven't lived unless you've eaten in that restaurant. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, for sure. It's a a good place. I was happy to uh, include it in the book for sure. You talk about his history. I, I, we we've touched on the history and the career and, and, but we also, when you mentioned the owning, possibly owning about the what ifs as historic a career as he had, he could have been responsible for uniting what would have been the WWF and NWA titles. I mean, although McMahon and Sam Mushick were uh, haggling on how many dates they'd get Bruno for uh, it was actually Bruno who, kind of shot the venture down. He said he'd only wrestle six days a week. Uh, but a huge, so from that, I have a huge, what if question, how do you think Bruno's career and wrestling history would have changed if Bruno had agreed to the unification and unified the NWA and WWF titles? Well, look, one, one thing we know for sure is that owners never, 
never do well um, working together. Every one of them, is, as a general rule, is um, has a huge ego. And I think, if I remember the way Bruno told the story, the NWA was going to get 16 nights and WWF was going to get 20 nights, which was like 36 nights. Yes. And he said, listen, guys, this is insane. I'm only going to you guys work out whatever you want. I'm only working this many nights. I got to see my family, period. And then, of course, I think Zach Go and McMahon got together and said, well, this is crazy. What do we need this for? We've already got Bruno here as much as we want him. And that was the end of it. But I don't think any merging. I mean, you tell me. Any any territory could have merged over the years. Forget about how it changes wrestling history. How does it just change those two territories? I mean, you know, for to work together, you have to be willing to compromise. And I'm just not sure compromise is in the job description of any owner of a wrestling company. You know, you know I, 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 I remember when uh, when uh, Vern Gagne and you know, they, I guess they what was the name of that that was Pro Wrestling USA. And yeah. Ganya and Crockett, and they couldn't get along. Nobody in the history, to my knowledge, has ever gotten along. I mean, put together one something for one night, that's fine. But, you know, you're talking about long term. You know, egos play a part. Greed plays a part. I don't think this it's something that would have lasted for, for an extremely long time anyway. So, um, so you who, know, once you have a taste that, of being though? a full owner. Oh, I, I don't remember who who was pushing it. It was probably the NWA. I mean, they were losing their champion. They wanted Bruno in their territory, right? Their champion was going to be the one giving up the belt. It was, so I was saying the NWA. Right? Um, I believe so. I believe so. But keep in mind, this was a blip on the map. I mean, this was a discussion for a few weeks, and Bruno immediately stopped it. It wasn't a topic that had a lot of discussion. Bruno wasn't involved in the conversations on the front or the back end. He just stepped in and said, this is it. So it's not like he could say, hey, you know, they talked to so-and-so, they did this, they did that. He, he wasn't involved and didn't care to be involved. He just let them know what he was going to do, and I'm sure they knew he meant it. So, um, so I, I tell a story about uh... – you know, when when I met Bruno at Rico's actually in, in December of 2017. And I, honestly, besides my, my kids being born, it's probably the best night of my entire life. And just, you know, spending time, I, I mean, I literally sat 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 feet away from Bruno and maybe five feet away from Dominic Danucci. I mean, you know, I became a 13 a, a year old jabroni kid from Long Island again. And but going back to what you said earlier. Bruno treated me like I was his nephew or something like that, like like he knew me. And so did Carol, you know, his wife. And it was just, I mean, that's what made it so special was just, I mean, Bruno could have just, you know, been like any other celebrity and just kind of, you know, oh, hi, hey, kid, how you doing? But, I mean, Bruno was asking me about my family. We were talking about Italian food. And, you know, I, I remember the last time you had, when Davey was on, he was talking about, uh, I guess it was the guy who made his wrestling boots, some some older man in New Jersey and he, you know, Davey found out he was a huge Bruno fan, um, you know, hooks up uh, a phone call between the guy and Bruno and Bruno is talking to the guy for 45 minutes. And I guess his son said that he never saw his father happier. And I mean, Bruno didn't have to do that. He, he could have said, you know, Hey, it's very nice to chat with you. You know, 
giving him two minutes, and the guy still would have been thrilled. But you know, Bruno always took it that 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 extra mile. Um, the thing is, you know, when you read on on social media, I've seen so many of these stories. Do you do you have any good ones, Sal? Well, I mean, there's a guy that used to play in my father's band named Richie Janitone. He's in the book. And for years and years, Richie would always tell the story about Bruno coming to his house. and Well, not to his house, but to his, um, I think, his grandfather's house, a guy named Kashmir Sabatini. And um, I would just listen to this over and over and over, quite honestly. And I didn't know whether it was true or not. But I did finally mention it to Bruno. I said, Bruno, look, this friend of ours, you know, we've known for many, many years. He says when he was a little boy, you went to a guy's house named Kashmir Sabatini. Yeah, yeah, I did that. He said, somebody asked me, we were wrestling in Yonkers and somebody asked me to stop by. So, yeah, no, that's a true story. We we did that. And um, years later, when Bruno was coming for his last appearance, I, um, I uh, had my dad call Richie and told him where we were going to be. And Richie came. And Richie was not a guy that was even coming out a lot anymore. But he was there. He was waiting for our arrival. He had all the pictures from the days. Now, Richie was only a 10-year-old boy at the time, maybe even younger than 10. And uh, But he had the pictures of Bruno and also Tony Marino, the Batman, oh, yeah. was there. And But I had never heard that. I had no idea the Batman was there. But Bruno showed me the pictures. He said, oh, this is Tony Marino here. He was traveling with me at the time. So he came over also. And... Uh, you know, Richie, of course, told him the story, and he remembered a lot of it. Like I said, this name, Kashmir Sabatini, was a name familiar to him. And um, when we were leaving the place, um, we I was already outside. Bruno came outside, and he, and he just said, Sal, the guy was crying. I didn't know what to say. It, you know, it just, you know, to me, two guys that I knew pretty well, one was, you know, the, the meeting was meant that much to him and to Bruno, he was still that humble guy. He just didn't, you know, he didn't understand how to react to people reacting that way to him. You know, so for me, that's the best story that I got. I know Bruno would have had many more, but, but, and you can see there's a big picture of Bruno and Richie in the book. I, I, saw one on Facebook and I'm not, I'm not sure if we, I'm you know, going to get, get this right or not, but uh, a, a young lady was getting married and I guess her dad was a huge Bruno fan and he had recently passed away, like right before the wedding. And somehow somebody arranged for Bruno to go to the reception and do the, you know, where the father would dance with the bride that Bruno actually yeah. danced with her. I mean, just, just stuff like that's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, Bruno was, Bruno was that kind of guy. He did a lot of things over the years for many people. Let me say this. The one thing I could relate to today, if there was such a thing as a Make-A-Wish Foundation, Bruno would have been the John Cena of his era. That I firmly believe. In his own way, he did. I mean, he visited many, many hospitals, correct? Oh, yeah. But there's obviously no tracking and this, that, and the other. I mean, what Cena's doing is, is trackable. It's, you know, very relatable to everyone. Bruno did a lot of things under the covers, but, you know, if this existed in the 60s, wrestling fans, I'm sure, would have been asking for Bruno, and I believe he would have put out the same kind of effort that a John Cena puts out with these kids. You know, Benny, uh, 
one of the questions when, when we were getting the questions together for the show, you mentioned Bruno getting an audience with the Pope. I was going to look up a picture of that for the posting, the picture of Bruno with uh, Paul the sixth. And if you Google Bruno San Martino, the Pope, for reasons that I'm not 100% sure how Google's algorithm works, the fourth picture that comes up is the picture of you and Bruno at that dinner. Wow. Well, I know I'm not the Pope, so. <laughs> I don't know why, but Google, if you Google Bruno San Martino, the Pope, I, you picture know I number four, the, Bruno right San Martino and, and Benny. Wow. <laughs> well, and listen, guys, the way that the meeting with the Pope wasn't about the Pope meeting Bruno San Martino, the wrestler. There was a local um, priest who had a conversation with Bruno and Bruno requested. And, but uh, there was never any indication to me that the Pope was going to be meeting the champion wrestler, um, you, you know, at all. Um, Maybe that was the case, but certainly I don't recollect any conversation like that. Now, what reason was given why he should be granted audience? I don't know, but this priest in Pittsburgh told Bruno that he could arrange it. And of course he was thrilled. He got time off immediately, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't meeting Bruno San Martino, the champion wrestler. I'm sure the Pope had audiences with numerous people, um, you know, and for, for various reasons that I'm sure many of them are arranged by priests around the world, maybe, you know, who knows? So while Bruno was very proud of that audience and he kept his word that the pictures would not be used for publicity and all of those things, I, I, I don't think it had anything to do with the Pope meeting a great athlete or anything like that. If it was, he certainly didn't relay, relay it that way to me. Well, all, uh, all jokes aside though, you know, uh, when that when that meeting was over, the Pope was telling his buddies he met Bruno. <laughs> well, I, I mean, look, any anything is possible because word certainly, you know, got back to to Italy. You know, I'm any, sure they were all uh, extremely they proud. Any, and, and Bruno any, put the Pope over an arm wrestling. Anybody that's that's been to a, a Yankees game or a boxing match or a wrestling show anywhere in New York, Philly. Some of the areas Bruno worked, you see a couple of white collars in the crowd. So, you know, so there was no way no every, the people in that room didn't know who Bruno was. Um, well, like I say, I, I tell the stories the way they were told to me. And, 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 you know, even if there was anything like that, to be honest with you, Bruno is just so humble. He's not going to represent it that way. He just he just wouldn't. Right. You said that that Bruno, if the Make a Wish existed, he would have been the Cena of his day. I, I want to kind of believe tra- that. I I believe it too. As as like and and I don't think he would have been as front and center. And I'm not saying Cena's doing it for the credit by by any means, but I don't think Bruno would have been as front and center doing USA Today interviews. Grant on Wish 500, he would have just kept doing it and not not made a thing of how many he had done. Look, I don't want to be critical. Look, I'm very critical of a lot of people, but there are certain things. You know, Cena is doing what he's doing in this time range because this is the way society is today. I mean, things were much different back then than than they are today. Um, You you know, everything is different. You know, look, quite honestly, if I'm to bring up something I've never said before, when you talk about the changes in the business from the old days to today, and, you know, when wrestlers started doing things, Bruno would use the word bizarre quite often. And then, you know, all of these other moves that really could just hurt you. 
if they're not done correctly. You know, I've always thought in the back of my mind, and I don't know what the year was. You know, I can't tell you that, but wrestling matches were mostly on the mat. Well, what happened when the first backdrop happened? How realistic did that look to anybody? You know, I mean, everything gradually over time changed. Now, do I believe things have gone too far? Yeah, for my world and what I grew up in and the business that I participated in, yeah. But still, you go from a completely mat game to now guys are taking backdrops. And then eventually, I mean, I was there when Tiger Mask flew over the top rope out onto the floor on Saito. You, you know, you had one guy doing doing that for a while. Then, of course, it exploded. But, you know, as much as people that are old school look at today's stuff and say, wow, it's outrageous. Well, I'm sure there was a time when a backdrop was outrageous. And, um, you know, I've never really spoken about that. But to be honest with you, it's been on my mind for a long time. So sometimes we just have to roll with the punches. It doesn't mean I, you know, I'm a huge fan of today's product because I'm not. Um, you know, and I don't likely see that I ever will be, but it is what's happening today. Companies are out there making money. Wrestlers are out there work, working and making a living. I, with the kind of stuff that goes on today, I don't think you'll ever see the longevity of somebody. And even if a wrestler today has longevity, well, how many matches did they wrestle? You know, it used to be you walk in a dressing room, you ask somebody how long they've been working. Well, three years, that meant they had six, 700 matches. You can't ask a person how long they've been working anymore. Today, you got to ask them how many matches they've had. And three years might mean 40 matches. <laughs> right. So it, it is a different ball game, And we have to be somewhat respectful to as times change, things change. They've changed in all sports. They've changed in football. They've changed in baseball. And there has, does have to be some evolving. I do think that our business has probably evolved at a more rapid speed than, than I would consider reasonable, but you know, it's not my, not my call. Well, let me ask you as, as we wrap up, Sal, I can't thank you enough for your time. Let me ask you, you said you couldn't get into the product. We talked hypotheticals and we talked different ideas. Uh, Bruno, you mentioned it in the book and, and he's talked about it. He talked about it in later interviews he didn't really follow the product as it was towards the end and, and his later years, he really didn't watch much wrestling at all. What do you think, if anything, he would have thought of the current wrestling product as it is today with your, your comedy matches and your leg slaps and some of the stuff that wrestling gets criticized for? Well, look, Bruno liked the business he was in. Um, you know, so I can't see that he would have liked, um, you know, the business the way it, the way it sits today. But that doesn't mean that, uh, it, you know, it isn't okay for other people. But Bruno liked the business he was in. Today's business is not the business that he was in. So from that perspective, no. Look, I'm just going to be straight up with you. The only thing that I remember, and this goes back a long time, Bruno watched very little wrestling, very little. Um, the one thing that I remember is Chris Cruz calling him up and saying, you have to watch this one guy. I know you don't watch wrestling. Please just turn this on. I want you to watch this one guy. And he did that. And he had a lot of respect for the wrestler. And, you know, he was very complimentary. He said, it was clear you, this guy knows what he's doing. 
et cetera, et cetera. And that person was um, Stephen Regal. Oh, wow. Um, that's the only comments that I made. And then, you know, it was kind of ironic that when Bruno was going into the Hall of Fame, I had already had Bruno booked for a personal appearance. And um, I got on the phone with Triple H, and the WWE was very accommodating. And, you know, they always were. When I was running Wrestle Reunions, um, one way or another, we always worked things out. If I had talent they wanted already booked, we did what we could for them. They did what they could for us. I mean, sometimes it was plain fares, um, you, you know, but I never lost a talent to the WWE. But one way or another, if I advertised the talent and they were like booked to go back to WWE, it was always worked out and, and it was okay. Now, in this particular occasion, you know, Bruno told Triple H, look, Sal's already advertised me, et cetera. You, you know, I can't just walk out on him. So they let me request who I wanted. And um, I was advised by someone that I should pick Triple H. Um, you know, I had some other people in mind, and they said, that may not be the best choice for you. Um, not to say people won't want to see them, but, you know, maybe if the line's too long, these people aren't going to want to stay. They're going to do exactly what they're told, et cetera, et cetera. So I went with William Regal, and, um, you know, when he got there, I said, you, you know, I don't know if they told you, but you're replacing Bruno San Martino tonight or this afternoon. And uh, he said, yeah, we realize that. I'm afraid nobody's going to want to come out and see me. Well, there was already an extremely lengthy line um, waiting for him. And when his time was up, I, I said, listen, I'm, I'm really sorry. I said, I know your time is up. He said, but, uh, you know, we've still got a long line. And he said, Sal, I'm not leaving until every single person gets what they came here for. And I said, Stephen, I just, you know, I'm sorry. Sal, I'm not leaving until every single person gets what they want. Don't worry about it. And um, he stayed there the entire time. And when I talked to Bruno after WrestleMania was over, he said, I saw him. I made sure, you know, I talked to him right away, made sure he, uh, he took care of you okay. And uh, so that was kind of ironic. But uh, that's the only story. Anything else that, you, you know, they really didn't comment on because he just really didn't watch wrestling. And obviously, you know, I mean, I don't know. Would Babe Ruth like baseball today? I mean, it's certainly not the game he played. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's hard to take somebody from one era, and as things have evolved to such a tremendous extent, you know, or, or do you love that? Or didn't you love what you did? I don't know. I mean, look, I'm no star, but this isn't the business I was in. You know, I think I could still go out there and work, certainly as a referee but it's certainly not the same business I was in. I mean, I never had a headpiece in my, in my ear telling me what to do or, you know, or, or clue me in on anything. I mean, we just went out and worked. I can respect that. As uh, we wrap up, Benny, any final thoughts, final questions? No, I mean, I guess just, uh, we, we all try to wrap our arms around the, the Bruno phenomenon and try to put it in words. I, I don't know if, I don't know if you can put it in words. Just Bruno was a once in a lifetime, both you know, performer, professional wrestling, wrestler rather, and and human being. And I don't know that we'll ever see another one like Bruno. That's that's a fair assessment. And you know, the one thing is I've had people read the book that really didn't care about wrestling. Um, you know, I have a decent amount of friends in the celebrity world, and you know, several of them 
who had no idea who a Bruno Sammartino even was. And they're just amazed by the story because it's not a wrestling story. It's a story about a man who overcame all odds to get to the top of the wrestling business, but it's not a story about a wrestler. And, um, you know, if you want to understand adversity, if you want to understand never giving up, if you want to understand a mother's love for her, for her children, um, you, you know, this is a book you, you should get. And, um, you know, I was very excited. I put Benny in touch today with the editor of, of the book, uh, Colin Bowman, used to own WCW magazine, is a wealth of knowledge, is, has a brilliant mind when it comes to this business. I was introduced to him by Jimmy Hart, and I wish that I had listened to Jimmy sooner because I would have had this guy much more involved in the earlier Wrestle Reunion events. He wasn't involved at all, but he was involved in everything I did, secondary. And uh, quite honestly, I was struggling to find an editor and um, for the book, somebody who could grasp wrestling to some extent. And, thing, and it finally hit me. And I called Jimmy one day. I said, Jimmy, I finally found the perfect editor for the book. I said, you know who it is? And he said, Sal, how would I know who it is? I said, well, Jimmy, it shouldn't be hard. He said, oh, Colin Bowman, right? I said, that's right. And, um, you know, as much credit as I deserve, Colin deserves as much, if not more. Um, he really took all the thoughts and ideas and put it into a format that people seem to be very appreciative of. Um, and I don't believe he's done many, if any, podcasts. And he has, like I say, a wealth of information you know, being involved with heavily with WCW and, and so forth. But he has a brilliant mind for the business. He's very involved in other things, pop culture type things and horror type things. The diversity of what you guys can speak to him about. I, I can't imagine if he's willing that he wouldn't be a repeat guest. So I look forward to you guys getting a chance to speak yeah. with him and, and be able to give his perspective of the book. You know, at one point he stopped me um, and uh, he said, Sal, look, the truth is the book could be a thousand pages. I think we need to stop because we had stopped once already restarted again. And he's, I, I, I think, I think this is it. And, and he was right. This needed to be it. But, uh, you know, there's, there's so much more you could have done and said about, uh, about Bruno, but 500 plus pages was, was enough. You but, know, it's um, 500 plus pages, but it's a very easy read. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we've gotten tremendous amount of compliments on it. Um, it you'll never please everybody, um, but it was done. And luckily, um, I did all the final interviews before Bruno passed. Um, you, you know, it, it was it was a very exciting book. Um, you know, the the one thing that um, I guess we didn't really touch on too much as far as opponents, I'd have a, a tough time giving you Bruno's absolute favorite opponent. I think I could call it and say it was probably Koloff, but Koloff, Kowalski, Duncan, Tanaka, these guys were talked about often. Um, but, you know, you also got your Don Leo Jonathans, and, and certainly I'm sure I'm forgetting, um, forgetting somebody whose name should have been mentioned, and maybe we'll get it the next time. But these are guys Bruno loved working with for various reasons, and there's more stories associated with all that. Um, but, you know, people ask who the favorite opponent was. I, I got to say, it had to be Koloff. You know, it was his choice to give Koloff the championship. And um, and I think the one thing that he was disappointed in, and who knows what would have worked and what would not have worked, but he said, I picked Koloff because I really thought 
that he could carry the territory for a while. And he, I, he was very disappointed. He wasn't given a chance. So here's a point where the McMahons didn't listen to him. Uh, maybe it wouldn't have worked. New York was kind of a baby-faced territory. Koloff, Koloff was a heel, but Bruno believed it. And many times he said, you know, I wouldn't have suggested him if I knew that's the way they were going to treat him. But I got to be honest with you. I don't know that if Koloff had the chance to go back and say, you're going to be the one to be Bruno San Martino in the middle, in Madison Square Garden. No, no BS, right in the middle, one, two, three. But you're only going to have the belt for X number of days. I don't think he would have said, you know what, do that to somebody else. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because no matter what, you were the guy that beat the guy that seemed unbeatable. He always had that on his resume. Right. Right. So um, I do think he had a tremendous amount of respect for Koloff. And, uh, but as far as great opponents, those are guys, I do think the one, one person, cause Bruno was not a guy that needed to see this one or that one, but I do think that he really would have loved to see Bobby Duncan one more time. And I made sure when uh, JBL interviewed Bruno for the WWE network, I said, Bruno, you're always talking to me about Bobby. I said, when you get with this guy, JBL, if anybody's going to have the information, it's him. So you make sure to ask him. And when he got back, I said, did you ask him? Oh, believe me, I asked him. And he brought him up to speed. So he was very happy about that. Pretty much most of these other guys, one time or another, if they were still around, he would run into people at, at events and stuff. But the ones that were gone, they were gone. Well, Sal, thank you again so much for your time. As he, we've referenced many times, uh, the book, Bruno San Martino, an autobiography of wrestling's living legend, uh, available anywhere books are sold, Amazon. Uh, and, and like Benny said, it's a great read. It's an easy read, and it's such a really a great story when you think about it. We talked earlier about Hollywood, and I don't even think if you were to write a fictional story about a wrestling megastar, it would be as interesting as the real one. So. No, I, I, I agree. It's an amazing story. And, you know, I think most of us would not have been able to live through the challenges he lived through. You know, I, I just don't, I mean, that, I understand what that was like being up in those mountains, how bitter cold, you know, I say, well, Bruno, why did you stay in Pittsburgh? You know how cold it was? He said, Sal, do you understand that there were times when we, would, that we couldn't even get out? The doors were covered with snow. Pittsburgh, the snow in Pittsburgh is nothing. <laughs> But a guy no. like me, forget about it. I, I couldn't have I couldn't have toughed out those winners in Pittsburgh. And and not just survived, but thrived and became one of the most respected names in the history of sports and entertainment. Just an absolute legend. And Sal, again, taking the time out of your busy day to talk to us, it's it's always a pleasure. And we'll definitely uh we'll reach out in the future. And like I said, uh autobiography of wrestling's living legend. Sal Carranti, anywhere books can be sold. Thank you again so much. But, you know, you mentioned, let me close with this. You mentioned Mickey Mantle two or three times. There was, uh, in the 60s, at some point, this is more just a tidbit, Willie Mays, Bruno San Martino, and Mickey Mantle were the three highest paid athletes in the world. Um, and, you know, he's been very clear uh, with me in the, in the past about that. Now, keep in mind, sports figures didn't make a lot of money in those days, right? Even Bruno... I mean, I'm sure it was in the six figures, but obviously today it's, it's much different. But when you think of those mainstream stars, Mays and Mantle, and here's San Martino with them as the three, and not in the United States, 
three highest paid athletes in the world. That's that's great company, Benny. I know is a, uh, always quick to throw a baseball reference out there. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I, I what came to mind was I remember it was probably in the mid to late seventies. Bruno did a commercial for Bally's, and he it, it was like Johnny Unitas, Walt Frazier. Uh, I I forget who. Uh, maybe not Bobby Hull. Well, I think I think one of the Espositos from hockey. I was Esposito. There. That's what it was. Yes, I was thinking of which hockey player, but all these like legendary stars Walt Frazier from the Knicks and there's Bruno front and center that just showed what kind of you know the, the high regard that he was held in yeah I just I figured you guys mentioned Mantle a couple of times and that was the the story there and there's really no doubt in my mind it's true again NFL guys like Wahoo McDaniel were having to wrestle in the offseason to make a living you, you know what I mean so you're making six figures back in that time that would be about the equivalent I think of three and a half to four million dollars today yeah, you know, think about that. Maybe no money compared to how they make money today, but they have a lot more revenue streams today oh, than, yeah. uh, than they did at the time. And of course, populations exploded, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I appreciate your time, guys. And uh, obviously, if you ever feel the need to do this again, by all means, um, you, you know, let me know. And uh, best of luck. All right. Thanks, Sal. Definitely. Thank you again. Thank you. Have a Bye-bye. great evening. Bye-bye, Sal. You too. Bye-bye. Always, uh, always great to hear. I know you said at the top of the hour, well, a little more than an hour at this point, that that's always your, Bruno's your favorite topic. So, yeah. And like uh, every time it's like that, uh, that picture of the, the dogs playing poker. Yeah. You, you can always take a look at it. And there's like one thing you never picked out before. Like whenever we talk about Bruno, something always comes out that I've never heard before. Right. So that, that, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it'll never change. Well, any any good movie, song, piece of art, you know, like you said, I've seen, I've seen you see a movie a hundred times, and on a hundred and one viewing, you catch something in the background you'd never seen before. I, you know what sticks in my head from what Sal said though is, can you imagine if if Bruno bought in with Vince Senior, and then Vince Junior buys out Vince Senior, now you got Bruno and Vince Junior Junior owning the WWF. I I can only imagine how that would have worked. Oh. That would have been something else. I'll tell you, I don't, uh, there, there are some talents that came and went in the early days of Vince Jr. That I don't think would have been anywhere near that company with Bruno at the helm. No, absolutely not. I mean, some of the, some of the, um, and, and two, considering that Bruno could have stayed active through the eighties into the nineties, some of the famous stories of the backstage BS that kind of, that almost ruined the WWF with like the rise of the Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart and that feud. And then Hulk Hogan and some of the stuff he was doing in the background. There's no way the locker room acts like that. When, when Bruno's walking the halls, I'll tell you that much. You know, the Montreal screw job could have been like the, the Montreal pizza party. Like (laughs) right. Never would have happened. Well, you know, this, uh, we're recording this, uh, the October 11th and, just recently, in wrestling news, the, the sad passing of Antonio Inoki, uh, one of the greatest faces, minds, and talents in wrestling history. One of the moments that, that kind of came, I don't want to say uh, uh, back, but, but it, the internet being what it is, there was a match years ago involving Luke Gallows, and I'm drawing a blank on who the other talent was, and 
apparently Inoki was not happy and just came out during the match and started banging a chair on the guardrail and was like, you two suck, get out of my ring. And wow. they ended the match. And it was like, you could see, I mean, it wasn't scripted, The cra- you know, because in Japan, the crowd's silent during the matches. Right, right. And here comes Inoki, like, he was clearly mad. And and it's like, I could see Bruno doing that in the middle of some pay-per-view, like, hey, you're done, you know, right. could tell him. And then, you know, the, the somebody, some, uh, you know, I don't know, some some random uh, bold British bulldog shows up, coked out of his mind and gets fired before he gets to the ring. So I think Bruno would have ran a, a very tight ship. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, who knows? Things would have been and there wouldn't have been nearly as much uh, jumping back and forth between the 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 Crockett, the early Crockett and WWF. And well, who knows? It would have been different. But history being what it is. Right. Yeah, nice to think about. Yeah. But. For the uh, BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Sebastiano. As you heard, we got a lot of good shows coming up uh, through the end of the year as we push on to episode 100. So for, again, BS Express, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Sebastiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Be careful out there. <laughs>